Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. If you have ever found yourself wondering, maybe wondering aloud, does anyone actually care? Then this morning's lesson is for you. When you come near to the end of the book of Psalms, there is... A collection of poems found there that may seem out of place. And the reason I say that is because in the first half or so of the book of Psalms, even down here in Pewpackers, we we have our kids sing the books of the Old Testament. We say Psalms of David because he wrote about half of them. But so many of those are found in the first half or so of the book of Psalms. But once you finish, oh, about Psalm 80 or so, you, you start reading Psalms by Moses, Psalms by Solomon, Psalms by the, uh, by Korah, by Asaph, or the sons of Korah, by Asaph, and some that are just unsigned that they're anonymous we don't know who wrote them we do know we know they're inspired by inspired by the holy spirit but we don't know who wrote them but then you come to eight consecutive psalms psalms 138 139 140 41 42 43 44 and 45 that are all written by david and you begin to think well, what are these doing here because i i thought the words of david were ended i i thought we had finished reading all of those poems way back earlier in the book But when you read those eight psalms, if you were just reading through your Bible from beginning to end or just through the book of Psalms beginning to end, they take your mind back to those earlier psalms that David wrote. And they remind you of a couple of very important things that we have to keep our mind through this lesson this morning. One is the very simple fact that though David was a great king and a great man and did great things, his life was nowhere near struggle-free. Sometimes he ended up in trouble because of his own choosing, because of sin and falling into temptation. Sometimes he found himself in trouble just because life happens and because of circumstances of life. But his his life, though he had some great things in it, was one that was filled with struggle. But when you read those eight poems, you're also reminded of David's amazing trust in God. That's not to say he was always perfect, not to say he always followed God's will. But if you read his life story as found in Scripture... We are touched by just how faithful he was overall throughout his life. And one of those poems is one we're going to study together this morning, the one that Dan read so well for us a few moments ago, the 142nd Psalm. And I hope you'll open your Bible to Psalm 142. In fact, if you have your Bible open to that Psalm, you'll have the entire outline right there in front of you in the poem. We're going to stay right in that poem this morning. And before we dive into it, I want you to notice something that's found 
in the superscription, those little words above the psalm that kind of tell us a little bit about it. Sometimes it just says of David or or something like that. But th- this superscription tells it's a masculine. We don't know what that means. It's some kind of musical term. We don't know what, what that word means. But it said it's the masculine of David when he was in the cave. The question becomes, which cave? Why does it say the cave? Because you may remember when David was running from King Saul. He stayed in more than one cave, did he not? I mean, a couple of them are named for us. In Gedi is one, Adullam is one. But there's several other times we're just told he was in a cave. We don't know which one it was. We don't know which cave is the cave. We trust that he was in a cave when he wrote him. We don't know which one is the cave. But I want you to keep the simple fact that he wrote this poem or this psalm from a cave in mind. Because though it's literally a cave, that setting also sets the mood perfectly for what David is writing in this poem. Charles Spurgeon, many years ago, as he was writing about this psalm and talking about the fact that it was set in a cave, said something along the lines of, a cave makes the perfect place for a prayer closet. I think that's a great comment. Because whether it's a literal cave or a figurative cave, you've been there before. Well, you were down, you were gloomy, things were dark, if you will, even figuratively speaking. And you prayed just like David did. Now, in the middle of this psalm, you have that famous line, no one cares for my soul. But I decided not to name the sermon that because I wanted you to show up this morning. But I also decided to change the name of the sermon because I want us to point out that though that is the famous line from this psalm, that's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is that David begins to turn his thoughts around. And so we're calling our lesson this morning that God cares for my soul. If you've ever been where you wondered, does anybody really care? This poem is for you. I want you to walk through it with me this morning in three parts. We'll read the verses together, though we read them together a few moments ago as we come to each part. But in the first place, David shares with us a hurting plea. Would you read with me verses 1 and 2? With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. David begins this psalm as he has so many others. If you read the psalms that he wrote, you can probably think of some in your mind. If if you can't think of some specifically, you might just think of phrases where constantly, it seems, David begins poems by saying, I cried out to God or I called out to God. It's just something he just says over and over and over again. But as you look at those couple of verses and David makes this plea from a place that's hurting, notice a couple of things about it. First of all, notice that it's audible communication. I cried out to God or I cried out to the Lord with my voice. You know, sometimes we cry out to God and, and we do it just within ourselves. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I don't know how often we we talk about something like First Thessalonians 5.17. It tells us to pray without ceasing. And we sometimes almost make the joke. It's not a joke. We, you know, we're saying we, you don't have to actually be uttering words all day long. You know, talking you know, just out loud. We sometimes talk about how it's having a, a prayerful spirit or a, a prayerful uh, composure to ourselves. And sometimes those prayers are just thoughts. We, we, we think something to God. You also might think of sort of the next step in that. And that's Hannah. 
In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, on the Sunday morning of Mother's Day, we're going to actually look at, at her life and the things we know about her and think about her as, as that example. But you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, how Hannah was praying to God, but her lips were moving, but nothing was coming out. And Eli, the high priest, actually thought she was drunk because she was just mouthing words. Of course, she wasn't, and that became a, a beautifully resoluted account because she convinced him, look, I'm not drunk, I'm just th- this upset. And maybe you've been there before where you were stirred within you enough that you tried to say something, or maybe you didn't even realize you were mouthing the words, but you just kind of, your mouth was moving, nothing was coming out. That's not what's going on in Psalm 142. In English... In Hebrew, whatever language you want to study, Psalm 142 in, David is making clear he is saying words. There is audible communication. He is pouring out his heart vocally before the Lord. And remember where he is? Can you imagine the sound in that cave? As David utters those words from his mouth and they echo through that dark, Lonely, gloomy place. You may have been there before. Where you were so hurt, so down, so stirred within yourself. That though you were alone, you literally vocally cried out to God. But what David cried out to God is even more important. So notice the ardent content of what he prays. You can sum it up in three words found in those verses. The first word is the word mercy found in verse 1. The King James Version uses the word supplication. The idea behind the word, the Hebrew word, is, is the word pity. It's probably really better that as far as the way we would have it. David is, is pouring out his heart before God, asking, supplicating God to have pity on him. I don't think he's wallowing in pity, as we sometimes say, but he's asking God to have pity. Look down on me. Do you see what's going on here? And the King James Version chooses the word supplication because that's the idea behind that type of prayer, that we are begging God for something. But then David writes in verse 2 that he's speaking of a complaint. This is a very interesting word. If you did a word study on this Hebrew word, it means all kinds of different things. Complaint is not a bad translation. The word also carries with it the idea of of meditating on something. But behind it is meditating on something that has you in an anxious way. When I see this word, I think of something like this. This is something that is absolutely weighing on David's mind. He can't get it off of his mind. It's, It's weighing down on him. And yet, where does he go with it? 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. David says, there is pity that I need. There is a complaint. There is this thing that's that's on my mind that that I'm meditating on. But behind that is, is something that hurts. And then he says, I'm also bringing before God in this ardent content trouble. But did you notice he said, my trouble. David is not coming before God with some just generic problem out there. He's not just saying, you know, Lord, sometimes people have problems and they're kind of like this. No, David says, I brought before God my trouble. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle to take my trouble before God. I don't mind taking just troubles, just general things, just saying, you know, there's sick people in the world or, or there's this going on. But I don't know why. Sometimes I struggle to say, God, I have this problem. I have this trouble. There's nothing wrong with saying I have a problem. Spurgeon, again, if I may quote from him, I love this quotation as he was commenting on this part of the poem. He said, Note that we do not show our trouble before the Lord that He may see it, but that we may see Him. It is for our relief and not for His information that we make plain statements concerning our woes. And then he gives this point of emphasis. He says, pour out your thoughts and you will see what they really are. David comes before God and he lays out before God a hurting plea. He's not afraid to actually vocalize it and he contains these things within it. I want pity. This thing is weighing on my mind and it is my trouble. In the second place, we turn in the middle part of the poem to a harmful path. Would you read verses 3 and 4 with me, please? A harmful path. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. David uses the terminology or the imagery here, I should say, of a path. And it's interesting that if we are correct in saying that David is in this cave because he's running from Saul, don't you know he might have had literal paths in mind? He had to have known. How is he getting through these, these, these areas, this wilderness, into that cave, into that cave, and to this place? He had to know paths to travel. But then he uses that imagery and brings it here to talk about the fact that these paths he was on were difficult. But did you notice even in the midst of that there's hope? When my spirit faints within me, you know my way, he said in verse 3. We don't know. If the trap that David talks about in verse 4 is one that is literal or figurative. But did you notice he said they are hidden traps? I think there is a point of spiritual application there. You don't set a trap that's obvious. I'm not a hunter, okay? But even I know that. You don't walk out and go, excuse me, I'm getting ready to shoot you now. Would you walk? You don't do that. You hide. You set traps and then you hide. You hide the trap. You don't do those kind of things. But David says this is a hidden trap. But it's a spiritual point of application there because is that not how Satan works? We know he works, but he's not going to walk up to you and say, this is a temptation. Make sure you don't follow it. It's not how he works. He's far more crafty, subtle than that. The man who ends up addicted to pornography didn't start out there. He fell for a little trap and now finds himself caught up in a web that he feels like he can't get out of. And note on how many examples we could use where it's something subtle, hidden. And now we wonder how we got there. But David is looking at his life literally and saying there are traps out there. And he's probably thinking literal that Saul has traps he has enemies he has soldiers he has whatever out there looking for him but david's situation seems even darker because he reveals that he feels as if he's alone 
Verse 4 begins with a very interesting phrase. The English Standard Version we've read together this morning says, Look to the right and see. It's almost as if David is giving God a challenge. But you may have the King James Version with you this morning, and it reads a little bit differently. It begins by saying, I looked on my right hand and beheld. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. In fact, I can barely spell the word Hebrew. But I've tried to look at this phrase several times, and I'm not sure which one is actually correct. But the emphasis is not on whether or not David is trying to issue God a challenge, if you will, or if David is saying, I looked there. The point is where they were looking. There was no refuge on the right. So what? We still use that terminology today, do we not? Someone who's a great helper is your right-hand man. That's what David is saying. It's as if even those who are the closest to me, God, whether you're looking on the right or whether I'm looking to my right, the ones who are the closest to me, the ones who are my right-hand people, they aren't there anymore. David is facing these hidden traps and he's facing them alone. There's no refuge for him among people anymore. He is alone in this, or at least he feels that way. And then with that, David makes that famous statement that no one cares for my soul. It's a pitiful state that David is in. It's probably a better word for that. It's the best one I can think of. It seemed as if no one cared for him. But did you notice he does not just say, no one cares for me. Because David's emphasis throughout his life was not always just on the physical self. Even in this time where he is as low as he can possibly be, he is still thinking about what's most important. No one cares for my soul. That's a powerful statement when someone is that low. That even then, he's thinking about his inner person. That part of him that really is him. When troubles come our way, and when those we thought were the closest to us run away, we might have physical difficulties, we might have physical pains, and certainly we should pray about that and consider that and be mindful of that. But in reality, what often suffers the most is our inner person. We're hurting in ways that we can't fully describe because it's a pain of soul. It's a pain of that inner person. And what a sad state it is, but we need to recognize it for what it is. Our primary concern should not be about physical suffering, but about our souls being healthy and leaning on God. But sometimes you may have been there where you thought no one. No one cares for my soul. Would it not be awful If that were the end of Psalm 142. What a horrible way to end a poem. What a terrible way for us just to leave it off and say, okay, David's in a terrible thing and nobody cares for him. The end. Aren't you glad there's more to this poem? Because in the third place, David gives us a hopeful petition. Notice what he writes as he closes out the poem beginning in verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. He is still saying it's difficult. Did you notice he references the fact that he has persecutors? But he is hopeful In the situation, we have got to understand that hope 
may not necessarily change our circumstances, but as Christians, we can let hope define our circumstances. Do you see the difference in those things? It may not change where I am or what I'm going through, but hope can define what it's going to mean to me to go through this difficulty, to go through this valley, to be in the cave, if you want to use the terminology from David's life. And that's what David does in these final three verses. Summarizing those three verses, we can use four words. First is the word refuge. He even uses that word himself. God is my refuge. And he adds in verse 5 that God is his portion in the land of the living. Notice that David does not say that God changes all the circumstances, at least not here. But he states it in the midst of difficulty... The Lord is ultimately the place of safety. We all need a place to go in the midst of struggle. And so as followers of God, we should be ever thankful of the promises of the New Testament. I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God continues to be that place of refuge. And while we cannot physically go to him, we we can't go to a location and there he is. We can go to him in, in faith and trust and know that he is there and find the refuge. The second word we can use to summarize these verses is the word realism. David does not mince words. Did you notice verse six? I am brought very low. And he also stated these enemies, these persecutors were too strong to for him. Sometimes. One of the things that helps us to have hope is to state in real terms what we are actually going through. Instead of, instead of trying to sidestep it, instead of trying to sugarcoat it, instead of trying to dress it up in language that may not sound all that, that difficult, or even our minds to try to think better about it, sometimes hope begins by saying, I can't stand this any longer. I'm brought very low. And this is too difficult for me right now. If his enemies caught him, David lost. Maybe more than just freedom, maybe his life. And remember, he feels, at least he feels alone. And so part of his hopeful, his hope, I should say, is stating this is what's really going on. The third word we'll use is the word release. Verse 7 begins, bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. And again, I think the King James does a better version here because it states that he's asking God to bring my soul out of prison. Because that ties back to that famous line of verse 4. No one cares for my soul. And now in verse 7 he says, bring my soul out of prison. Sometimes difficulty feels that way. Sometimes it feels like a prison. David's in a cave. He had to think that literally felt like a prison, especially if his enemies figured out where he was. That was it. He was trapped. But sometimes grief, sometimes loss, sometimes just entrapment and sin, sometimes whatever we face feels like a prison. And the hope comes from the fact that God can release us from those things. God delivers. And then the fourth word is the word righteous. Even though it seems as if no one cares for his soul, cares for David, he ends by stating in the the last part of verse 7, The righteous will surround me, for you have dealt bountifully with me. There is great strength that comes to believers when we see other believers make it through a difficult time and do so in faith. We celebrate that. Our prayers go from prayers to deliver them and to help them to prayers of celebration and praise because God has brought someone through Or has helped someone through a time of difficulty, loss, sometimes even a time where they were deep in sin 
and came out from that as well. Even in the midst of a group of believers, you may sometimes feel that no one really cares. And you may feel as if no one really cares for you at the deepest of all levels, on the soul level. The name Ed Sorensen may be one that means nothing to you. In fact, it didn't mean anything to me until I came across this story. But to a family in the state of Florida, the name Ed Sorensen means nearly everything. See, several years ago, there was a man and his two children, both about college age, who decided to go swimming in open water. And they were told that day that the style of swimming, the style of kicks and things that you use in open water were fine for that day, but not to dive deeply down, down where near underwater caves were because the style of kicking and the equipment and things could stir up silt. And Twins Cave, which was underneath where they were, was known for silting. Well, you can tell where the story's going. They decided they knew better than the experts, and so they went with their open water swimming, and then decided to go down, at least see the entrance to the cave. And as soon as they got near the beginning of the cave, the entrance to the cave, the silt began to fly, and they could not figure out even where they were. The daughter, college-age girl, was actually the, the lead swimmer. She was the one in the first part of the line. They were all connected by a cable. They got into the cave, and silt was there in their face to where visibility was actually said to be zero. And they got to a point where all they could do was actually feel. They couldn't see anything. They began just to, to touch each other, to touch the walls of the cave, just to try to figure out where they were. But they knew they could not be down there for very much longer. Their oxygen would run out. No one was nearby except a small group that happened to see the cable coming out of the water. But none of them were scuba divers. They knew they couldn't get down there. They frantically, because of the age of technology, began to text and call and try to figure out, can anyone get here? They called the rental place where you rented the equipment and the gear. They knew that one of their workers, Ed Sorensen, was getting ready to teach a class not far away. They called him and he said, have a boat ready. He changed into scuba gear in the boat, dove down, holding on to the cable, leading down to where this group was. He said he could not see them at all, but he found them by following the cable down. He would later say that as he began to pull them out, the daughter, he said, had a death grip on me, but she was relatively calm. I don't know how those two things go together, but that's the way it was. And he was able to pull them out to safety because of his expertise and his ability. I tell you that story because when we hear those stories of rescue and heroism, it's sometimes very easy to put ourselves or try to think about what would I have done if I had seen them go down there? I wouldn't have had the ability to dive down. I don't have that skill. Maybe I would have made a phone call or tried to text someone. I could have done something, but I don't know what I would have done. But it's easy to try to put ourselves in the hero's shoes. But I want to twist the story for you for a second. What if you had been that family in the cave and no one cared? What if there was no Ed Sorensen? What if the people who saw them go down said, good enough for them? They were told not to do that. This isn't the right kind of day. This isn't the right kind of conditions. Sometimes 
we end up in caves in life. Because like that family, we make wrong decisions. Sometimes we choose to go against biblical wisdom, against common sense, against the wisdom of faithful Christians, wise people who tell us, quit going down that road. And for some reason, we keep going down that road. We figure out, I don't know how I got here, but here I am. And we sometimes wonder, does anybody care? Sometimes we end up in difficult places, not because of sin, not because we've gone down the wrong road, because life just happens. Sometimes things just happen that bring us grief, bring us difficulty, bring us struggles. And we wonder, does anybody really care? And sometimes we look around and wonder, is there an Ed Sorensen? And sometimes that Ed Sorensen is hard to find. But I came this morning to tell you this. That no matter what cave you are in or may have been in. The lyrics to the song continue to be true. Yes, for me, for me, he careth. With tender, loving care. You know why those lyrics are true? Because I only quoted part of a verse a few moments ago. 1 Peter 5 and verse 7. Casting all your anxieties on Him. Why? He cares for you. May I ask this question? Do you care for Him? Even if no one else seems to care. We all know someone does. We know that. But even if it seems as if no one else really cares. God cares for you. If that's true, why wouldn't you want to follow him? Why wouldn't you want to be his child? Why wouldn't you say, God, I really don't care what you ask me to do. I'm going to do anything you do ask me to do. And so he's made it clear. That he cares for you enough that he sent his son to die for you. To take your place. And asks you just to respond to that. In faith. In repentance. In confession of that one as Lord. Jesus as Lord. And then in a faithful act of baptism. Whereby you place your life in his hands. And those sins are washed away and you are his child. If you've never done that, this morning's the time to do that. Maybe this morning you have done that. Maybe weeks ago, maybe months ago, maybe decades ago. But maybe you find yourself this morning in a cave of life and you wonder, does anybody really care? Yes is the answer. But I want to remind you this morning that God ultimately cares. And maybe this morning you need to respond to the invitation saying, I need encouragement. I need, I need the strength to put one foot in front of the other a little better. Maybe, maybe it is sin. Maybe it's something you've, you've got caught up in. You say, I, I don't know how I got here. I know it was my own choice, but here I am, and I want out of it. God cares for you enough to forgive you again. What a wonderful God we serve. Yes, for you. For you, He careth. Will you come to Him while we stand and sing to encourage you?